we're back for another episode of the Equip Project podcast. Last week, Jim, you sprang what can only be described as a vicious attack on our intro music. Um, you've got some sort of cunning plan to try and overthrow it. How's that plan going, do you think? I think it's going very well. <laughs> uh, as Isaiah said, the foundations are shaking. Uh, although I have to admit that I'm a wee bit nervous about how our listeners reacted to last week's suggestion. Yeah, the response has been quite entertaining, actually. So one listener said it made them laugh out loud, but they're reserving judgment. I really appreciated that useful language. Another said they laughed far harder than they thought possible. Another was both shocked, but not even slightly surprised. (laughs) Another said it was much too upbeat for a quip, which I happen to agree with. Um, And others were fascinated to hear how you'd stumbled across a song that seems to have gone viral on TikTok. Do tell. On TikTok? Yeah, apparently so. Wow. Uh, I'm more on trend than I thought. <laughs> but I'll tell you why. Uh, what happened. A few months ago, I completely re-engineered my Twitter feed. I think I told you this. Because the people I followed were putting me in a bad mood. Well, a, a continual state of mild irritation is maybe a better description. Because uh, I was following all these right-wing commentators who you know rail against the madness of woke culture. And that's okay in small doses. But an undiluted diet of scorn and despair isn't healthy. So I took an axe to my Twitter feed and replaced some of the right-wing commentators with happy material. Lots of nature photography, videos of baby elephants and wolf howls and red pandas eating grapes. I mean, it's simply impossible to be in a bad mood when you've watched a panda munch on a carrot. Um, So there was one video of a group of, I think it was baby penguins chasing a butterfly. (laughs) The the background music was that piece I played you last week, the do-ba-do-ba-do song. And it, it represents my inner happy place. Oh, wow. I'm, just, I'm imagining your Twitter feed right now. So it's essentially Ben Shapiro alongside pandas and butterflies. Is that, is that how it looks? Yes, with the, with the occasional lonely wolf hole. <laughs> what, a pla- what a place to be. Um, and you have, worryingly, you've got a second candidate ready for today, don't you? I most certainly do. I'll play it to you at the end of the episode, and I'm really confident that it is a vote winner. Oh, man. I, I genuinely am nervous. My, my palms are actually slightly sweaty, but... Uh, <laughs> We'll we'll come to that later. Um, Before we sort of get underway with this podcast, however, we want to acknowledge a sad event that occurred since we last spoke, Jim. Um, After a long battle against pancreatic cancer, the theologian, pastor and evangelist Tim Keller was called home to glory this week. And at the start of this episode, we wanted to pay tribute to him. Yeah, I I am really grateful to Keller for many things, uh, but particularly his approach to evangelism. When I was a younger man, I always felt intimidated by opposing worldviews, especially atheism. But then I saw this courageous, courteous man engage with culture in a winsome and unafraid way. I remember my jaw almost dropped once when I saw him hold live Q&A after sermons he'd preached to sophisticated non-Christians. So I think he pointed an entire generation in the right direction. 100% gospel-focused and Bible-centered but he modelled how a preacher can engage contemporary culture with quiet confidence. His legacy will live on for a long time. His eternal reward will be immense. I was thinking of that verse in 2 Peter chapter 1. Keller has received an abundant welcome into the eternal kingdom. Absolutely. Um, I was so sad to hear the news of his passing. Tim Keller's teaching has been a, a constant in my life since my teenage years. I must have listened to him hundreds of times. Uh, particularly when I've been struggling to understand a passage or wrestling with doubt or just needed some encouragement or to see the Lord Jesus more clearly. 
Um, and if I had to sum up Keller's impact on on my life, uh, on, on my walk with the Lord, I'd say he helped me to see that Christianity was not only true, although he did help me to see that, but also that it was supremely beautiful. He had a God-given gift to be able to tell the gospel's better story in a way that resonated with our culture. And I'm so thankful to God for his life and witness, and we'll be keeping his family in prayer in the difficult days and weeks ahead. We've called this season Twitter Storms, Jim, because we're using some of the controversies that have arisen in the US to illustrate risks that face Christians this side of the Atlantic. We've called this episode The New New Atheists, so our first job, Jim, is to explain that strange title. Well, way back in 2007, the term The New Atheists was applied to men like Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins. They were fairly brutal enemies of Christianity. They saw it as a poisonous thing, a belief system that had blighted humanity for a thousand years. And they were determined to destroy Christianity. So Hitchens wrote a book called God is Not Great, and Dawkins wrote The God Delusion. But in the past decade, something new has happened. The new atheists are now dismissed by most public intellectuals. They're seen, actually, as a bit embarrassing, even by their fellow atheists. And in their place, we have a group of academics who, while they're not Christians, are much more sympathetic to Christianity. Yes, these are the people we're calling the new, new atheists. Um, I'm thinking of men like Jordan Peterson and Douglas Murray. Um, I'm also going to lump uh, the historian Tom Holland into that category, even though he's not an atheist, he's uh, an agnostic. Some people even think he's a proto-Christian. But we could also add in to the category the historian Niall Ferguson or the philosopher Roger Scruton. Then there are the secular Jews of the United States like Ben Shapiro and Dennis Prager, who are often heard defending Christianity's role in the West. Now, the crucial point I want to make about all these guys, the reason I've put them into this category, is that they all sit on the right of the political spectrum. It can often feel that Christians stand shoulder to shoulder with these new, new atheists in the war against the woke culture of the progressive left and the war against neo-Marxism. And in that war, we often say, my enemy's enemy is my friend. Okay, so we might summarize the new new atheist position as saying that while Christianity isn't true, nevertheless, it is necessary. Without Christian values, Western civilization will die, they seem to be saying. The right-wing historian Niall Ferguson is a great example of of your point. I mean, Ferguson is a self-professed atheist, and yet he once said this, I know I can't achieve religious faith, but I do think we should go to church. I don't buy the idea that evolution alone gets us to be moral. It can modify behaviour, but there's just too much evidence that in the raw, when the constraints of civilization fall away, we behave in the most savage way to one another. I'm a big believer that with the inherited wisdom of a two-millennial-old religion, we've got a pretty good framework to work with. Now, that quote illustrates your point perfectly, Ollie. Christianity isn't true, but it is pragmatically useful. Another example of the new, new atheist position is Douglas Murray. Now, we've talked about Murray's book, The War on the West, before. Murray is a gay atheist, but he describes himself as a Christian atheist. In recent years, he's started to warn that the decline of Christianity is a dangerous thing. Society now faces three options, he says. The first option is to reject the idea that all human life is precious. Another is to work furiously to nail down an atheist virgin of the sanctity of the individual. And if that doesn't work, then there is only one other place to go, which is back to faith, whether we like it or not. Murray lauds what he calls the revolutionary moral insights of Christianity. He even admitted that once while visiting the Sea of Galilee, he couldn't shake the feeling that something happened here. It's amazing how far that language is from the, 
you know, the scorn and bile poured out by Hitchens and Dawkins. These men respect Christianity. They think the West is doomed without it. And you even sense at times a longing for it to be true. We published a special mini-series on church history, and the big idea behind that series was that Western civilization is largely a product of Christianity. All the things we hold dear in the West, the values we regard as most precious, they don't come from the Greeks or from the Romans, they come from Christianity. And throughout that series, we talked a lot about a book called Dominion, written by historian Tom Holland. Holland is famous for making the case that the idea that all human beings have equal moral worth comes from Christianity. And yet Holland himself seems to be an agnostic. There was an astonishing debate between Tom Holland and an atheist called A.C. Grayling recently. Grayling is what we might call an old new atheist. In other words, he's in the same camp as Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens. He is utterly contemptuous of Christianity. Now on paper, we might expect Grayling and Holland to be on roughly the same side. But Tom Holland went off on this passionate defence of Christianity. If Western civilization is the fishbowl, he stated, then the water is Christianity. Grayling really had no answer to Holland's arguments. He just fired petty and vindictive little barbs. So it was amazing for any Christian to watch someone who uh, is probably still an agnostic defend Christianity with such passion. And another example of a new new atheist is the late Roger Scruton, uh, the famous philosopher. He's a lifelong agnostic, um, but he headed back to church. He even played the organ in his local Anglican church during Sunday services. He wasn't sure he could believe it all, but he wanted to. And he hoped that practice would help him along. It was Scruton who famously said that while he struggled to accept Christianity's truth claims, he had become convinced that Christianity was necessary. Now, we've left our most famous example of the new New Atheists to last. Jordan Peterson has seemingly teetered on the edge of conversion to Christianity for years. The famous psychologist has gathered an enormous following. Millions of young people, including many Christian young men, listen to his lectures. Peterson has recently given lectures and written articles on books in the Bible like Exodus, and he seems to revere the Bible as a source of wisdom. He talks so much like a Christian at times that Christians often say he's close to becoming one. Now, that all sounds like good news, Jim. Surely it's a good thing that all these right-wing intellectuals are treating Christianity with respect. One of my favourite characters in the Chronicles of Narnia is Puddleglum. Puddleglum is a marshwiggle, and his most endearing trait is his habit for expecting disaster in nearly every situation. In fact, he assumes the worst in everyone. And at first, the children consider him to be a complete wet blanket, uh, you know, a pessimist. But he turns out to be unflinchingly loyal to Aslan. And Puddleglum, as I say, is one of my fictional heroes, uh, and <laughs> I'm going to sound exactly like him uh, when I now answer your question. Because you're right, you know, when we first listen to these new, new atheists, a great wave of relief can sweep over us. At last, we think, we have some powerful allies. Look at how they smash woke culture, we say admiringly. We applaud as we see them wade into battle against the progressive left, how they defend our Christian values. But the voice of Puddleglum inside our heads warns us that our enemy's enemy is not necessarily our friend. As we watch these new atheists battle it out with the woke elite, never forget that you're watching a battle between right-wing humanists and left-wing humanists. And right-wing humanism is virulently anti-Christian. Now, to explain what I mean by this, let, let me just do a quick gallop through the history of ideas in the West over the last 350 years. So after the Reformation, we come to this phenomenon called the Enlightenment. And the Enlightenment, uh, the Age of Enlightenment as it's called, ushers in what we call modernity, the modern era. 
And that great project ran all the way up to the middle of the 20th century when it crashed and burned uh, at the end of the Second World War. It's often said that modernity died in the ash heaps of Auschwitz. But rising from those ashes comes the thing we call post-modernity. And postmodern thought is the soil from which all the woke ideologies of the left spring. So the so-called Age of Enlightenment in the 17th and 18th centuries brings in the ideology we call modernity. And then that gets replaced in the middle of the 20th century by the ideology we call post-modernity. That's, that's roughly a good rule of thumb. Now, what was modernity? At the heart of modernity, you find three key ideas. Okay, the first is the notion of the autonomous individual. The Enlightenment offered a radical new freedom to human beings. So that's the first idea. The second was the power of reason. So modernity valued scientific investigation and logical proof. And the third idea was scepticism. Modern people were encouraged to be sceptical about all social and religious authority. Religious dogma was to be replaced by rational thought and scientific exploration. So those were the three big ideas, individual freedom, the centrality of reason, and scepticism. Now, as we discussed in our church history series, modernity was a thoroughly anti-Christian ideology. It took the values of Christianity, but cut itself off from the source of those values. The Enlightenment Project built up a hugely impressive counterfeit to Christianity, and there emerges this set of ideas that grabs all the values built patiently over centuries by Christianity and then builds them into a secular humanist framework. So it was Christianity which produced the idea that each of us is an individual. Every one of us, no matter what our social status is, is a creature made in the image of God. We have equal moral worth. Standing on that common ground, every human being, whatever their gender, ethnicity or social status, could know themselves as a rational and moral person, a person with agency, with the will of their own. But the Enlightenment thinkers took that Christian idea and blew it up into a radical freedom of man as an autonomous being. That's right. Modernity encouraged us to make man the measure of things. Instead of being a contingent creature who trusted humbly in his creator God, modern man was master of his own fate, the captain of his own soul, to quote the poem Invictus. The second big idea of modernity was the deification of reason. Christianity has quite a humble perspective on reason. We're grateful for it. We use it all the time. But we don't elevate reason to the throne of God. And that is the best way to understand the impact of men like Immanuel Kant. Now, I remember we talked about um, uh, one facet of this uh, in the church history series when we talked about the, how the French Revolution deified reason. I, I think it was in the second year of the French Revolution um, in 1793, there was a festival organized to worship reason. Um, churches had been smashed up and re-engineered into what were called temples of reason. So the crosses were smashed in the graveyards uh, because death had been renamed as the eternal sleep. And in Notre Dame in Paris, the altar was dismantled and a new inscription carved in stone to philosophy. And the last of your three big ideas about modernity is scepticism about religious dogmas and authorities. The idea of divine revelation was rejected because it wasn't a source of knowledge that came from reason alone. Now the thing with all three of those ideas is that they are profoundly anti-Christian. Autonomy, the deification of reason and scepticism each represent dangerous attacks on, on the Christian worldview. Now, the modernists don't want to throw Christianity away completely. We really like its values, they say. We just reject its truth claims. So they wanted to seize the benefits of the Christian values that had been built up slowly over centuries, while at the same time cutting themselves off from the God of the Bible. I, I remember um, 
Os Guinness describing the modern world as a cut flower culture. Uh, think about that. Uh, a bunch of flowers in a vase looks nice. But the truth is that the flowers are dead because they've been cut off from their root, from their only source of nourishment. And so eventually the flowers will wither and rot and die. And that is what happened to the modernity project. Man made himself the measure of things. With godless arrogance, modern man promoted himself to be the master of his own fate. And that produced the utter horrors of the 20th century. So the modernity project crashed and burned in the rubble of the Second World War. Now, it is the puddle glum inside our heads which reminds us of all that history. These men, remember, the new new atheists, are modernists. Yes, they hate postmodernism and all its children, but they don't want to return to the Christianity of Wycliffe or Wesley. They want to go back to the Enlightenment, to bring society back to the failed modernity project. So that's why I've grouped these men together. Never forget men like Peterson and Ferguson and Murray and Scruton are all modernists. They are right-wing humanists. And all forms of humanism are anti-Christian. So we need to be really careful about allying with them in our struggle with the progressive left. Uh, Let me just try and illustrate what I mean here practically. I mean, we rightly criticize the left for their idolizing of sexualized identities. But it was modernity which built the idol we call autonomy. It wasn't the left. It was the right which built that idol. Sexualized identities are a counterfeit of the Christian idea of a soul. But who killed the idea of the Christian soul? It was the modernists. Or think about the rejection of absolute truth. Again, we criticise the progressive left for rejecting objective truth. But what was the first step in that journey? Well, it was the radical scepticism of the Enlightenment thinkers. Their scepticism has just eaten itself. Modernity created a universal acid, and it has burned everything, including modernity itself, away. There has been a long-running debate in academic circles that postmodernism is not really a reaction against modernity, but a continuation of modernity. And I have real sympathy with that view. I'm going to give you an utterly grotesque analogy here. Because I personally see postmodernism like, like the blue flies and maggots that feed on a rotting corpse. We shouldn't lay all the blame for society's collapse on the neo-Marxists like Foucault and Marcuse and Gramsci. They're just the blue flies. Society was killed by the Enlightenment thinkers who cast us adrift from the God of heaven. Jordan Peterson's treatment of the Bible is a good illustration of what you've been saying, Jim. He regards the Bible as a purely human artifact. He thinks it's important that it evolved over centuries and was rewritten time and time again, because he thinks that the repeated process of telling and retelling myths and stories is how humanity has arrived at a greater self-understanding. Yeah, Orthodox Christians say that the Bible is a book written by God about God. Liberal Christians say that the Bible is a book written by humans about God. But Peterson says that the Bible is a book written by humans about humans. It's irrelevant to Peterson whether or not God actually exists. He is a cut-flower modernist. He wants to retain the values and wisdom of Christianity without God. So he reduces the Bible to a collection of Jungian archetypes. And there's an argument that we're seeing the same missing piece in Tom Holland's view of history, perhaps. He's the host of a really popular and interesting podcast called The Rest is History, which I listen to regularly. And two of the recent episodes were on the person of Jesus. And some Christians really tried to to pull out encouraging things that Tom Holland said in the podcast, and, and there were some of those. But he seemed to stick rigidly to the idea that historians shouldn't consider the supernatural. So he concludes by saying that the events recorded in the New Testament don't actually require 
any supernatural explanation. So once again, we do see a passionate advocate for Christian values, then cut himself off from the actual truth claims of Christianity. One of the reasons I'm so wary of allying with these new, new atheists is that I got, I got my fingers burned badly a decade or so ago. There was a columnist called Matthew Paris, still around today, but in his heyday he was a journalist who wrote columns for the Times and the Spectator. He, he was a right-wing humanist, a gay atheist like Douglas Murray. But he was often sympathetic to Christianity. I remember once being really impressed when he, he said that Africa could only be saved by Christianity, and not Christian values, he wrote, but real flesh-and-blood Christian salvation. So I once quoted him approvingly in a sermon, and that was a mistake, because Paris has turned on Christianity. He wrote a disgraceful article uh, criticizing the atonement at Easter time this year. So, so that's just to illustrate my point, Ollie. These guys could turn on us at any minute. Obviously, we pray uh, that they won't, that they will uh, come to faith in Jesus Christ and repent of their sin. But they could turn on us. It could be that once the true light of the gospel starts to make them feel uncomfortable, the right-wing humanist in them will react. Right-wing humanists are just humanists. So are you saying then we shouldn't quote these men when we're doing evangelism? No, no, I'm not saying that at all. They're still useful men to quote. Just be careful about allying with them. Um, the gospel is not the same as right-wing humanism. We aren't interested in going back to the Enlightenment, to use my grotesque analogy. There's no point brushing the blowflies off the corpse. We need to return to the source of life. We need people to be born again. Christian values never saved anyone. Only Christ can save. Anyway, Ollie, I'm going to play you my second candidate for a new opening theme tune. Now, you remember last week I employed the WWORD strategy, the what would Ollie really dislike? But I actually think you might like this one. So are you ready? I'm anxious and more sweaty than ever, Jim. <laughs> actually Jim I'm, I quite enjoy this I already feel less sweaty and more peaceful isn't it brilliant I, I actually you know I mean I, compared to last week that is like a, <laughs> it's like a it's like a, a balm <laughs> it conjures up you know a warm Paris evening in the 1920s yeah. you know, think of Hemingway and Scott Fitzgerald sitting outside a cafe smoking their Galois cigarettes yeah. I'll, pretend Picasso, I'll pretend I've heard of them Picasso and Matisse are discussing art at the next table I mean could you not just see us talking philosophy over a cheese board at some, on, on some Parisian terrace overlooking the Seine you've yeah you've painted the picture <laughs> beautifully and I think let's do it let's go to Paris I mean Jim, I'm, I have to say I'm pleasantly surprised, and I think our listeners will be too. Nous sommes le podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and that, dear listeners, is that. <laughs> <laughs>